You are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Our current serial is Musketeer Space. Chapter 45 Anjou Wine. The support vessels Frenzy Kenzie and La Constantina remained in position at the edge of Truth Space, close enough that ships and personnel would be able to reach them for medical assistance and supplies, but not so close that they were at risk of being taken out by long-range shots from the sun-kissed fleet. Dana had known when she chose this assignment that she would not be going into battle herself, but she'd not realised quite how far she would be stationed from the front line. Communications were patchy at best, Assuming that the Sunkist would not be able to tap into their most secure military frequencies was a mistake made during the last war. Never again. Fleet net and personal comms were now blocked for anything but official notifications from the command posts. The flippant chatter of Dana's musketeer friends had driven her up the wall on the journey, but this silence was worse. She would do anything for a snarky tweet about Porthos's love life right now. Dana's war began when three sabre-class darts arrived unannounced, their hulls scarred with laser burn, to be taken on board for medical attention and repairs. What followed was eight days of hell. Ships, mostly darts of sabre and musket-class, might appear at any time of the 24-hour clock, often in packs of at least three, sometimes with multiple crews crammed into them, depending on how badly other ships had been damaged. Base and his NG interns, and Chantal with her supply assistants, were run off their feet, printing and fixing musketeer hardware to allow ships to be sent back into the field. Dana, left with little to do but monitor the frenzy Kenzie's drift, found herself conscripted into the Medibay to help Wheels manage and monitor the wounded alongside her squadron of medical androids. The technology did most of the work, but an extra pair of human hands and lungs and brain cells was always useful. Dana's main responsibility quickly became supervising the movement of damaged pilots from the airlock to Medibay, so they didn't keel over in a corridor en route. The Frenzy Kenzie and the St. Constantina weren't the only support vessels. There were at least two others based on the far side of truth space. So even if Dana's favourite musketeers were injured or dented, they wouldn't necessarily end up here. As much as a base for supplies and repairs, the Frenzy Kenzie became an unofficial gossip hub, with every tale of sun-kissed action passed on to the next wave of patch jobs. One wall of the main airlock was given over to scrawled messages from the pilots and NGs to their loved ones and comrades because it was assumed that everyone would come through here sooner or later. Dana saw all manner of familiar faces on her ship, including Amaral Treville at one point, escorting the regents herself after a nasty sortie. Lala Louise Renard Royale had flash burns down one side of her face and was discreetly lodged in a private room behind the medibay while she healed up. Are we winning? Dana could not help but ask Treville in a low voice, 
as she handed over fresh supplies for the flagship, including a crate of meal bars and fresh printed uniforms. Treville was exhausted. She downed a whole tube of chilled water without pausing for breath. We're not losing, she grunted, which wasn't the same thing. On day six, Dana found herself climbing into a familiar dart to slice Captain Tracy Dubois out of her helm and harness, after the metal had been fused to the dashboard by an unknown sun-kissed weapon that scared the hell out of everyone. I saw Aramis two days ago, Dubois reported. Dana would have hugged her if she wasn't busy trying not to cut her skin off, along with the melted cables. She was doing well. The morning star's barely been grazed. I saw the hoyden at a distance this morning. Porthos was in the thick of it. Took out three teardrops in under a minute. Athos's wretched green thing has been all over the place. He's impossible to miss. Small fragments of information like that were better than nothing, Dana told herself. But alive two days ago didn't mean safe and sound today. She worked and she worried. One day melted into another as the siege of truth wore on. On day eight, a musketeer that Dana barely knew handed her a package. I had it from Chouile, who had it from Valentin, who had it from Bourlois, who had it from Treville, he said, barely glancing at Dana as he stepped into the bright white medibay. Hey, Wheels, here I am again. Didn't I just patch you up, Mikhail? complained the stern, grey-haired medic, spinning around in her hover chair. Dana didn't open the package until much later, as she lay down in her bunk at the beginning of a regulation six-hour shift, hoping something like sleep might happen. The box contained two vacuum flasks of well-packed wine from Anjou, one of the finer vineyard countries in honour, north of the equator. Dana wasn't sure who had sent it. Her first guess was Chevreuse, giving her a recent habit of mysterious communications. Maybe even Conrad, who was supposed to be staying with Chev. But deep in the package underneath the flasks, she found a hollow card that made her grin ridiculously. It was a pick of Porthos, Aramis and Athos, squeezed into the same bed in an unknown medibay. Aboard the Sherwood, perhaps, or the Belize, with medipatches wrapped around every visible limb. They were alive and recuperating. The message on the back read, Drink it for us, we are banned. Dana considered it. God knew she was unlikely to sleep without some kind of chemical assistance. But she packed the flasks under her bunk to keep them safe for later and allowed the feeling of relief to wash over her like a blanket. All three of them were alive and safe for at least a couple more days by the look of those patches. She could breathe. It would all be over soon. Waiting to drink the wine with her friends would be no hardship. Over the next 24 hours, Dana thought about that Anjou wine a lot. She was dragged out of her bunk when a dozen or more darts appeared at once, and it was all hands on deck. 
to separate the damaged ships from the damaged pilots. An hour later, another six ships turned up. Then another wave, the hour after that. Dana was practically hallucinating about the Anjou wine at that point. She promised herself that as soon as there was a lull, she would drag Planchet or Chantal or anyone she could find back to her room and make them drink with her until their skulls were ready to float into space. The next wave of ships included the pistachio. Dana didn't realise at first. Base was on a sleep shift, so his assistants and Dana were run off their feet, fitting out several darts to be space-worthy again, so they could free up space in the cavernous docking level. Dana and Planchet waved the last of these into airlock one and watched them punch out in military formation, only to turn and watch three more ships power slowly into airlock two, ready to be rolled inside. One of the ships was green. Planchet moved first, calling for support droids to crack open the other ships, and for the second NG assistant, Dana couldn't even remember her name, something beginning with Z, to check their crews for medical triage. Planchet herself went straight for the pistachio, beating one fist on the chassis before hunting for the external lock release. The hatch folded open and an exhausted-looking grimoire hovered at the top of the steps. Superficial damage to the ship, she reported. Minimal repairs needed to get him back into the field. Then she turned her head and shouted, Unlike the pilot who is a colossal asshole." I'm glad you're okay, said Dana, running up to her. What's wrong with Athos? What isn't wrong with Athos, Grimaud muttered and started discussing technical specs with Planchet. She clearly had no interest in talking to pilots today. Dana let herself into the pistachio, and found Athos in the cabin, stretched out on his bunk, too pale to be healthy. His eyes were open, but he didn't seem aware of her presence. "'Are you drunk?' Dana demanded, leaning in. His pupils were blown wide. Are you high? Nexus. Of course he was still taking pilot drugs, but this reaction was too intense for that. She went back to the hatch and called Grimaud. How many different stims are we on right now? The NG stared back at her, silent. Dana was prepared to wait all day if necessary. Medical treatment is confidential, you know that. Tell me. You use automated medical systems on this base, Grimaud reminded her. During military operations, all Medibay computers and androids automatically report inappropriate drug usage found in patients. Dana winced. Shit. Is a sobriety patch going to make a difference if I give it to him before we log him in? He's had two already. They reacted badly to the caffeine implant. And that's not taking into account the three different strains of pilot drugs he's been bouncing between over the last two days. Anger stabbed through Dana's chest. Is there a chance that me smacking him upside the head will make the situation worse right now? That's the only reason he doesn't have a black eye from me. 
Grimoire, I don't know how you do it, Dana sighed. Most pilots are idiots, the NG said. The trick is finding one you're willing to take stupid risks for. Athos is worth it? Dana thought so. But she'd always wondered about Grimaud's fierce loyalty. He doesn't make small talk. That goes a long way as far as I'm concerned. Grimaud frowned. It's possible I have Stockholm Syndrome. I'm taking him somewhere quiet for a proper med assessment, Dana decided. I'll keep the androids away from him if I can, but honestly, if he's being this dangerous about stim usage, we should let them report him. Grimaud gave a short nod to concede the point. The walls of Medici College were butter yellow, as if they were doused in sunshine even on cloudy days. Olivier Armand d'Orteville sprawled in a window alcove with a text reader spread across his knees. He was paying little attention to the revision he had to do. You could come home with me, he suggested. Auden, a beautiful too thin boy, with silver hair and cut glass cheekbones, leaned against the glass of the window at the other end of the alcove soaking up the sunlight. You want to turn up for the holidays hand in hand with a no-name scholarship kid and announce that we'll be sharing your fancy four-poster bed or whatever it is that rich families sleep on. Gold-plated sheets and caviar throw cushions. That will go down marvellously, sweetness. Olivia hated that. He hated that Auden could be so cutting and funny while putting himself down as if he was accustomed to thinking of himself but as worthless, but entertaining. I don't know if you've heard, but I'm the Comte de la Fere now. I don't care what my family thinks. You've been the Comte for years, and you've always cared. Basking in melancholy was high in Auden's skill set. Up there with sarcasm and dead languages, these were all things that Olivia loved about him. Love. So, there was that. Now I'm of age, said Olivia, speaking lightly so Auden would not catch on that he'd been struck by a life-changing lightning strike of a personal revelation. They can't stop me doing whatever the hell I want. When Auden smiled... It was like the sunlight of the ivy-draped courtyard outside was here in the room with them, warming the walls, lighting up the ancient bookshelves and wall portraits. And you want me? Olivier grinned in return, pulling his boyfriend into his lap, and to hell with the text reader, which fell to the floor. I always want you. It was a dream. Of course it was a dream. Athos hadn't let himself remember the good times in years, while he was awake. But his subconscious mind was a traitor and a love-struck fool. Other dreams weren't nearly so pleasant. Athos dreamed of his ship crumbling around him, of the gravity of valour ripping through the Paris riposte on their way down to the surface. 
He dreamed of getting D'Artagnan killed in that stupid crash while the pursuit ships fired upon them. He dreamed of Grimaud, wounded and limp in his arms. He dreamed of the planet he had always thought would swallow him whole, and the mountain that he had once believed would be his eternal resting place. Valor. Athos. The ship exploded around him, metal scattering in vicious shards. Athos saw Grimaud dead and D'Artagnan dying. He could not save either of them. He stared at his feet, where the soft green grass of valour curled gently around his ankles. Bare feet. When he looked up, he saw the face of his husband, beautiful and sad, with bright silver hair tussled around his slender neck. You're not going to do this, said Auden, in a low voice, the voice that had always made Athos, Olivier, shiver with want. You're not going to give up what we have. I love you. I trust you. I always have. Olivier Armand d'Auteville, the Comte de la Fere, spoke without a hint of emotion. There's only one way. To kill a devil. Is that honestly what you think I am? Alden's voice was a howl, a screech, several octaves too high, an alien, unfamiliar sound. Alien, oh yes, there was that. It doesn't matter what I think. Olivia ground out between his teeth. I lost the right to happiness. When I lay down with the enemy. The sword was real, a family heirloom. It felt heavy and metallic in his grasp, warm to the touch, not the cool, perfectly distributed weight of a pilot slice. Humans knew little about the sun-kissed even after surviving a war against them, and yet one fact stood out. To kill them, you take the head. Auden tilted his head to one side, basking in his own beauty. Of course he was beautiful. His face was manufactured, everything from the pale grey eyes to the sculpted face. He was created to be admired, to make humans weak at the knees for desire of him. Kill me then, sweetness. Let's see how much better it makes you feel. Olivier swung the sword, severing his husband's head from his neck. His duty, he reminded himself as the ugly thud vibrated through his arms and his heart, duty above everything. It had to be him who struck the blow. How could he trust it to anyone else? His hand closed around a glass of whiskey, relishing the way that it felt against his palm before he poured the contents down his throat. That didn't help either. Athos's eyes snapped open. He hadn't dreamed of that in years. Oh, there had been dreams, terrible torturing dreams, that regularly ripped his heart out of his chest, but not that. Not the moment when he performed the execution. The failed execution. Cutting off their heads doesn't work after all. I should warn someone about that. Where am I? he muttered. Grimaud? 
It came out as a slur of unrelated consonants, and he realised too late that this wasn't his bunk on the pistachio. Damn it, had he totaled another ship? He found a flat white medipack, fastened his bare chest, and sat up in a hurry, groaning as his head churned, and the bright lights of the medibay hurt his eyes. You're alive, then? It was a chirpy voice. Athos glared at it until the blur resolved into a familiar person. Pigtails. You know that's not my name, the redhead said, not offended. She passed him a cup of ice chips. Dana would have hung around, but she said she was likely to smother you in your sleep if she did, so she's gone back to work. Grimaud? Much the same, only she said break his limbs instead of smother him, and she's overseeing the repairs of the pistachio. Athos nodded slowly. He didn't hurt as much as he might have expected, but he still felt shaky. Am I grounded? Inappropriate Stim's usage in the field three days out of combat, said a different voice, breaking into their conversation. You are to report back to Treville at Shallow Station as soon as you're fit to travel so she can shout at you in person. A fifty-something medic in a hover chair whirred over towards them, peering at Athos through her thick glasses with professional interest. You're getting off lightly, kid. Athos had a long history with Wheels, the musketeer's longest-serving medic, and he was well aware that things could have gone much worse. Always a pleasure, sweetness, he drawled at her. Wheels gave him a dirty look. Don't even think about trying to flirt with me, Mr. Posh Accent. I haven't slept for 48 hours and I have no sympathy for self-destructive pilots. Were you trying to kill yourself? Suicide by front line. Athos was taken aback. No, he said, and he meant it. There were times he'd come close to that, but no. Aramis and Porthos would never forgive themselves if he let it get that bad. They had enough of a hold on his heart that he curbed his more self-destructive impulses. Perhaps he was due for recalibration about what exactly counted as self-destructive. Good to know. Wheels made a check mark on the clamshell that rested on the arm of her hover chair. You'll remain here for three more hours under my observation, and then you can get the hell out. Planchet says Cap will let you bunk with her while you're on enforced downtime. Athos blinked, not used to the idea that their baby-faced D'Artagnan was a captain now. Am I allowed to know what happened to my pants? Dana was dog-tired, worn to the bone, and while she wanted to check on Athos in the Medibay, she didn't have any energy left for the angry rant she had building in her head. Sleep first, shouting later. She let herself into her small quarters and toppled headfirst onto the bunk. She lay there still and silent for at least ten minutes, trying to work up the energy to take her boots off. If she sat up, she could get at that wine. She would need to hide it when Athos was well enough to bunk with her, but she was going to drink some of it first, and to hell with hypocrisy. In order to drink, she had to get up. Her door chimed once, twice, three times, and even before she could react to it, 
she heard an urgent thumping against the door. Damn it all to hell and back. Dana rose slowly, staggering with exhaustion, and thumbed open the door. Athos stood on the other side, wearing Medibay printed pyjamas and an agonised expression. What? Dana snapped. Pigtails told me about the Anjou wine, Athos blurted out. Heat surged through her body, her anger and fear about what the fuck he'd been doing to himself resolved in a single furious punch. Athos went down like he'd been felled by a sankafoil pole, and Dana didn't even feel guilty about it. She stood over him, yelling about how much his friend loved him and how he was a stupid, selfish addict who was going to break all their hearts when he got himself killed out of sheer drug-induced idiocy. When Dana paused to take a shaky breath, Athos tried to speak. She cut him off with another round of ranting, then sat on his chest and hit him a couple more times. Finally, she ran out of words and fury. D'Artagnan, Athos started to say. Dana raised her hand to smack him again. He caught her hand and flipped her onto the ground, leaning over her with her wrists pinned hard above her head. Dana! This is all very touching, he snarled into her face. But if you would stop emoting at me for half a minute, I didn't come here because I was thirsty. Dana glared up at him, breathing hard. Then what? Athos sighed, still not relinquishing her wrists. Aramis and Porthos and I have not been inside the same Medibay since this damned war began. We've barely seen each other since Shallow Station. We never sent you any fucking wine. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. This podcast was recorded on Palawa land. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional owners and continuing custodians of Lutruwita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch. You can sign up to my author letter for updates. <laughs> my author newsletter. Uh, follow me on Twitter at TansyRR. And if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. See you next week.